Welcome to the Lakeland Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm Jesse Keller, and today we've got Matt Heisel, and we're going to be talking a little bit about altered mental status. Thanks for being on the program. Thanks for letting me try and ingrain some alleged wisdom on our incoming interns and other uh, residents starting the residency this, this summer. Yeah, congrats to all those who have matched into their ER programs, and that's kind of what um, the emphasis behind this new series that we're going to do on a general approach. Yeah, the idea is that most of what we do in emergency medicine, we walk into a room, we take a history, we do a physical exam, we generate a differential, we make up a plan, uh, and we move forward. With mental status, obviously, the patients can't tell us sometimes anything. Uh, and so you have to have a different approach, uh, a different framework, and a different way to approach these patients than you would your average patients who can give you a history. So what I generally default back to is what you walk into in full-blown resuscitation as well. ABC, IV, O2, monitor, glucose. If you can start off with that framework in your mind, ABC, IV, O2, monitor, glucose, that you're going to be able to take the lead and give the nurses direction on what they're prioritizing, what needs to be done right now, what needs to be done in 10 minutes, what needs to be done an hour from now. The idea for this talk is to, is to go into that. I, I like that because I think what's sometimes missing, at least from the initial presentations that I get from earlier residents, is that lack of, of excitement. When this could actually, yes, a confused elderly patient might not be the most exciting thing you do, but potentially you're going to see the most pathology in this patient and you, you've got to have kind of your game on. In a lot of ways, weakness and ultra mental status, those are great chief complaints because you may actually find something. How often do you see the belly painters and the chest painters and we do the CAT scans and we do the four hour and the CPU workups uh, and you don't find anything and you know you're not going to find anything. With a lot of these altered and, and elderly weakness patients, there's a good chance you're going to find something. And as Jesse and I were talking about beforehand, there's a decent chance you may find a few things. Uh, and so keeping an open mind is going to be a, a very useful thing. So to start off, obviously, first of all, you're looking at the airway. Are they protecting their airway? Our traditional thinking is that GCS of eight and below, they need to be intubated right then and there. Jesse, you can tell me what your approach is. A lot of times my thought on this is that in those patients who are severely altered right now, in those ones where you're thinking that there may be a severe head bleed that's not going to be survivable, I don't necessarily tube them all right away. That a lot of times I like to, if the patient's protecting their airway enough that I can get them to CAT scan and back and then readdress, if I know there's already blood in the vents, then we're going to go in a different direction than if we intubate them now and then are looking to transition to comfort care. I know that a lot of times I've just intubated based off of the GCS, at least early on, and I've, and I've regretted it. Definitely in some patients where maybe their family's coming, maybe I'm going to be able to get a lot more information from this patient. I'm going to have to communicate with consults as to what this patient is. You do lose a lot of your ability to, take a very, to, to get any kind of history that you're going to get when you jump right to intubation. Now, sometimes it's the right to do and if it's going to delay me getting the right blood test or access or a CT scan, I think it's appropriate. But you're right. I think a little bit of hesitancy there, as long as there's no t impending you know, doom, I think that a couple a couple minutes can really save you. And realize this isn't that doesn't apply to the 20-year-old, the 50-year-old, the 60-year-old who people are going to be a lot more aggressive uh, with neurosurgically. But that demented person who's coming in with that full-on O-sign, perhaps you may serve them better. If you ask, what would we want if we have a non-survivable bleed? Most of us would say, you know what, give me comfort care. I don't necessarily need someone shoving a tube down my throat, unless the intern needs a tube, in which case, go for it. But Once you go full court press, it's really hard to go backwards. Especially if they need any kind of sedation on the vent, because if they're needing, if you sedated them and then you do want to go to comfort care, it gets a lot harder to just stop. Now, if you know that if you know that 
you're going to be able to intubate this patient without uh, sedation and you're fairly confident they're not going to require ongoing sedation, yeah, then you can extubate uh, fairly easily. But it gets more difficult when you're giving propofol and then, then you're like, oh, you know what, this patient's comfort care and didn't want anything done, then you have, it's, it's kind of a harder decision. Agree. Let's move on to breathing. Uh, of Are they breathing effectively? Now, a big area that we run into in emergency medicine is our narcotic overdoses. Uh, and so considering very early on, is this patient a narcotic overdose uh, as the reason that they're not breathing effectively, that they don't have respiratory effort, um, that using Narcan early is a huge thing. Jesse, how much Narcan do you typically give patients when you want to wake them up? Well, I, I first ask the question, do I want to wake the patient up? That's a big question. <laughs> Curious to hear what you do. Yeah, in my mind, what it boils down to is can I bag the patient? If I can bag the patient, if I can get their oxygen up, then I like to go very slowly. That I like to give 0.4, give it a minute to work. Give it 0.8, give it a minute to work. Give the 1.2, give it a minute to work. Then you can give the two milligrams. And after five minutes, you're up to the full four milligram dose of Narcan. The issue is when you slam a person with a full dose of Narcan and they just wake up wailing and flailing and bolting for the exit, you haven't necessarily helped them uh, if you were able to limp them through that few minutes by going more slowly. So I really encourage people to go slow with the Narcan, assuming you can bag them, assuming you can get their oxygen level up, then I usually say keep them breathing, but you want them to stick around long enough for me to be able to observe you and make sure you're safe to go home. I see. I like that. And, and now I'm, I'm, I'm getting a lot more patients where opiates aren't the only thing on board. And even though I've reversed the opiate, I've just made the agitated or the sympathomimetic you know, drug that they also took, the cocaine, the, this, you know, the methamphetamines, this, the, you know, they're, they're mixing their drugs. And so, yes, you've reversed one, but you've probably just allowed the other one to take over. Now you've got an agitated delirium. Now you have the unbridled cocaine in their system and making them race for the door. So, so starting slow is, and having a little bit of finesse with your Narcan is something that I think will save you a lot of headache later. Another situation, another pitfall I've seen people make is that Narcan is listed as something you can put down an ET tube. In my mind, there is no situation where if you've had to intubate the patient, you're then going to give them Narcan. Because all that's going to happen is they're going to wake up wailing and flailing and yank their ET tube, and 45 minutes later, they're going to be super drowsy and somnolent again, and then you're going to have to try to intubate them, and now their airway's all swollen because of the tube that someone jammed down. Don't give Narcan to an intubated patient, and once you've tubed them, we're going to let them wake up slowly. Just don't do it. I like it. And the other breathing sort of issue that's well worth thinking about here is are they a CO2 narcotized kind of patient? A lot of this kind of goes into kind of your gestalt and kind of looking at that patient that you're going to find with time that you're going to be able to look at a patient and say, this patient looks like a COPD or this patient looks like someone who's on dialysis. This patient looks like someone um, who has lupus and they're cushingoid from all of the uh, steroids that they've been on. They're going to be able to walk through the door and get a gestalt um, of, a, of patterns of patients and being able to identify that some of our patients with chronic COPD who've been smokers for 50 years, um, that realizing that they may need BiPAP and other sorts of things, and we'll get into that more in the difficulty breathing lecture, just recognizing that as, as a potential for the altered mental status. If you don't think about it, you won't find it. I agree. I think too often we're focused on that O2 sat. And that's not the only th component that we have to be, you know, concerned about, which it could be making them altered. Sure, a hypoxic patient's not going to be, you know, alert and 100% orientated, but also the CO2 is going to influence their alertness. 
and there and that's something that I think gets missed because we we say we look at that re reassuring oxygenation and we address that but I think we often kind of forget about the the CO2 and in the days of when we can slap a you know an end tidal CO2 monitor on there's no reason if we suspect it we can get an early indication of what's happening with the patient that's true you don't even need the arterial or, or the venous blood gas so we've talked about airway we've talked about breathing your patient seems to be breathing well they're protecting their airway circulation do they need fluids because there's a ton of time especially with elderly patients that when they're hypotensive they're going to be altered and that's just a fact of life and so having an early threshold for considering do I need to give this patient fluids unless they obviously have the physical exam stigmata of CHF I think you should be giving these patients fluids because there's so many different situations where hypotension and even borderline perfusion is going to cause that patient to be altered. And it might not be the 30 cc per kilogram bolus we give to a lot of our, you know, our septic patients, but yeah, like you're saying, giving them a 250 or 500 cc bolus initially during your initial workup. 20 minutes later, see where you're at. Yeah, I, I, I like that because I, I think people for often look for that subdural, epidural bleed in the elderly patient to try and explain the confusion. A lot of times it could be something more systemic causing it. It's sepsis, it's dehydration, it's the six different medications that they're on, it's they got a little bit dehydrated and they took three extra Motrin for the hip pain and now they're in renal failure and ditch toxic and all of these sort of things. Um, you don't know, uh, but you can temporize frequently with kind of some fluids. Um, so airway, breathing, circulation, get those sort of things started. And then kind of very much looking at your vital signs because obviously this is fairly obvious. Vital signs are vital, but there are certain times when the blood pressure or the heart rate and the combination thereof can give you specific, uh, specific insight as, as to what may be going on. There's some things that are easy and obvious that fever makes it more likely to be sepsis. With that thyrotoxic patient, you don't see these all the time. You may not see a full-blown thyroid storm more than a couple times in your residency, but that patient who's both tachycardic and hypertensive and altered, when you've got both of those going on and you're not thinking they're cocaine or methamphetamine or some sympathomimetic tox syndrome, that thyroid can be a reason for both of those to be up. Um, metabolic acidosis patients, that patient is tachypnic and altered, but they're not working for air. They're not hypoxic that that needs to be kind of a picture that you're kind of recognizing and looking for for that patient who's new onset diabetes and is in full-blown DKA and they're altered and the respiratory rate is 35 because they're trying to blow off CO2. I think that happens very commonly and they're breathing fast. It must be their COPD, their asthma is their primary you know problem because they keep breathing fast. You keep giving them meds, you know, nebs after nebs. You're not getting a response and then all of a sudden you realize wait a minute, my patient's just acidotic, their, their lungs are fine. Yeah, keeping, keeping a broad differential kind of goes into all parts of emergency medicine, but this is so certainly no different. So once you've got airway, breathing, circulation, got that IV in, got them on the monitor, you have them going on at least a, bit, a little bit of oxygen, make sure you don't make them CO2 unarchetized. Blood sugar, blood sugar, blood sugar, blood sugar. And what you will find is that we frequently get spoiled by our EMS that they are very good at checking that blood sugar. Uh, but every now and then, perhaps it slips through, or that patient is becoming altered in the hour or two they're spending in your emergency department, or a uh, family brought grandma in to evaluate her for whatever it, whatever it is. You gotta think about the AccuCheck, um, because you will absolutely find that hypoglycemic patient is sweaty and altered and confused. 
and, and has, you can fix it quickly. And, and they can really, you know, have focal neurologic signs. They absolutely can. They can have old deficits. They can have old injuries that any number of things can be brought out by whole body systemic states. And hypoglycemia, don't leave it for your techs or your nurses to diagnose for you. You need to be thinking about that. And so if you're thinking about this, this rubric, airway, breathing, circulation, IV, O2, monitor, AccuCheck, if you keep running through those things in your mind, you're not going to miss these sort of patients where you send them to CAT scan, they come back altered, they're even more confused now, and maybe now they're sweating, and you look at your charge nurse, and she looks at you, and you say together, did we ever check the blood sugar? And you both hit yourselves in the foreheads and then give an ampity 50 for that sugar of 35. Yeah, I think this is, the, this is like you know, presenting a chest pain patient when you haven't looked at or gotten the EKG. It's really, you know, you're setting yourself up for failure here. You have for to the altered it. patient, if you are leaving that room without knowing what their glucose is, you need to go back to the room and get it. So the glucose is the EKG to the altered mental status patient. One might argue it's the CAT scan, or another person might argue it's the urine, but we'll come back to that uh, uh, later. But yeah, getting into the question of, of, yeah, now your workup, that now you've got things at least temporized, that you're 10 minutes into your workup, uh, and you've got a little bit of room to breathe, and now you can think about, okay, what do I think is actually going on? How am I going to assess that broad differential? Uh, so let's talk a little bit about CAT scans. Um, CAT scans are looking for one major thing, um, and then other sort of minor things as well. That you're, The biggest thing it's going to tell you right now is, is there hemorrhagic stroke? Obviously, that's going to change the direction that you go hugely or, or subdural, uh, some other kind of neurosurgical um, issue. It's worth talking about the other elephant in the room, which is ischemic stroke, and that very many things could represent an ischemic stroke. And very much it's a trend in medicine right now that we want to pick up these patients early because we want to consider you're going to not necessarily like every time you give TPA. However, studies have shown that on average, you do patients more good than you do harm by using it. Obviously, we want to select our patients and that selection is kind of evolving over the years, but stroke is something that you have to consider on each of these patients. And so Jesse alluded to this earlier, what is their exam? Do they have focal deficits? Can they squeeze? Can they grip? Uh, realizing that grip is sometimes a, a reflex. Um, are they moving things? Are they moving each side spontaneously? When you can't get a great story out of someone, sometimes doing passive range of motion and seeing how much they resist you can give you a sense of a sided defect. Another part of stroke is that most of the time, most stroke patients don't have decreased mentation, that they may be having trouble getting words out, but they're usually not somnolent, they're usually not confused. Obviously, there's exceptions. Pontine strokes make you sound like. But kind of assessing whether you think that this patient is whole body altered or whether this is focal, focal stroke is something you need to think broadly about. And remember, we think of stroke, we think of MCA strokes. We think aphasia and your arm and your leg aren't working. But cerebellar strokes show up in every single M&M that, that you ever go to. Feeling off overall, turned out it was a, a cerebellar stroke. Even just kind of generally altered personality changes can be anterior, anterior circulation strokes. So there's a lot of things that can be there. We want those patients going to CAT scan in 25 minutes or less. If, they're, if you're going down a stroke pathway. And a lot of times when you're, when you're working these patients up, I'll put in a, a plug to use your basic stroke order set to just get a whole bunch of stuff ordered all at once. 
Uh, each of your institutions likely has that. We have that here at Lakeland that you can hit one button and voila, there's your stroke workup. And a lot of these times, you know, you're, you're looking at something that it's not only stroke that's time dependent, but, you know, in the, in the setting of, of these confused patients, you don't know their history. You don't know their time of onset. A lot of times you don't, you don't have a lot of family with you. So sometimes getting that early CT scan to make sure that you've ruled out that, that bleed that could be causing the picture right now, it's not something you want to wait three or four hours before, you know, to, to get. Yeah, and along that time course point is that if you do see significant early ischemic signs, then you may know that this, is, that, that this has been going on for a while. Um, that's an entirely different podcast that we'll revisit uh, later on this year after a few more studies come out in terms of wake-up strokes and, and those sort of things. I think that's enough stroke, but we did cover it. <laughs> so noted. The other thing that we wanted to touch on here was in terms of evaluating your differential because there's a lot of times in emergency medicine that we tend to have basic shotgun approaches that uh, your chest pain workup, really the only thing you're deciding is whether or not you're going to do a D-dimer or not. Um, you know you're doing troponins. In abdominal pain patients, they're old, they have belly pain, you're getting a CAT scan. You just are. In ultramental status, there's any number of things that it could be. And if you don't think about these sort of things, you're not going to diagnose carbon monoxide toxicity unless you send that specific level. You're not going to diagnose hyperammonemia from a situation where the patient is uh, has end-stage liver disease, if you don't look at that patient and say, you know what, this patient has ascites, this patient has stigmata of chronic alcoholism, I need to think about some other sort of things. You're not going to diagnose chronic salicylism unless you actually think about it. So keeping a broad differential to look at what medicines are my patients on. Are they dilantin toxic? Is this a side effect of their digoxin? Another kind of big area, is this a partial, is this a partial seizure? Do they need an EEG for, for partial status? You're not going to think about it unless you, unless you do it. Different things that are worth thinking about on these patients to give yourself a shot at diagnosing some of these less common things, but things that you absolutely will see every single year over the course of uh, working in the emergency department. Yeah, I agree, because I think initially when, you, when you're when you studying these things and you're looking at your Rosens or your Tentinellis, you're thinking, okay, if I get a patient with ringing in their ears, I have a salicylate poisoning, or if I'm, you know, but it's not that simple. A lot of times we don't get the, the history that they had a ear, ring in their ears for three or four days. And they then, might never have that. You, you need to know that they've been having overdose. chronic back yeah. pain. And what do you take for your back pain? Yeah. I take some medicine. What medicine do you take? I take aspirin. How often do you take it? When I need it. How often do you need it? Yeah. Going through and really pinning people down on what's going on, 99% of the time there, yeah. doesn't really do a whole lot. And that 1% of the time is going to keep you out of M&M and it's going to give yourself a chance to alter the course of a patient who otherwise was going down a bad road. Yeah, so I think you're, you're absolutely right. So because you don't have a, a, sometimes a talking patient that you're able to really spend a lot of time and narrow it down, I'm always against a shotgun approach to medicine. But in the confused patient, at least cerebrally, you need to think about all the labs that, need to, that could explain somebody's altered state. Absolutely correct. The one other lab that is worth talking about in a general approach to altered mentation in the emergency department is alcohol levels. Do you want to know what your patient's alcohol level is? Jesse, you tell me what, you have, what tell me what your mindset is in that. 
Well, you know, I think that's a that's a good question, and I think I, I would say that in the elderly confused patient, um, when I'm not quite sure what's causing the, their altered state, I'm definitely sending an alcohol level, and and when I don't have a clear history, but I would say that maybe nine times out of ten on a on an alcohol intoxicated patient, I have a very clear history of why they're altered, and if I'm willing to observe them till the morning and, and make sure that I intervene if things don't clear like alcohol clears, then then I, I definitely think it's appropriate to get a level. I, I yeah. don't think you need to be beat up for getting alcohol levels in some patients. Yeah, In my mind though, if you do, if it is obvious what's going on, you don't necessarily, you're going to evaluate, you're going to watch them until they're clinically sober. But clinically sober for me is very different from clinically, from a, very different from the alcohol level of clinically sober from many of our patients. And so unless it's going to change what I do, I usually don't do them. Uh, that it's all fun and game to play the, hey, let's guess, see if we can guess what the alcohol level in this patient is going to be. And if you haven't exactly bingo to an alcohol level, you haven't practiced emergency medicine very long. You will. But I generally, if it's not going to change what you do, I tend not to necessarily check it. I agree with Jesse 100%. When you're trying to ask yourself, is the alcohol the problem? then it can definitely save you out of some other workup. The other thing, that, other thing I'll put out there is that what I found is that alcoholics can hide an incredible amount of blood in their head, that they have frontal, frontal lobe volume loss, uh, and it's a lot easier for that 50-year-old alcoholic to hide blood in their head than what hopefully our brains look, look like when we're 50. Uh, for some of us, sadly, that's closer than others. I think that brings a, a, a very important point to the picture here, is that the alcoholic who's confused because of alcohol can also be confused because he also has a subdural. In other words, these things run together. The stroke and the UTI can occur at the same time. You, you, it's not one shot. And so it, a lot of times these alcoholics go a lot longer before, before you realize that they're suffering something else because your brain relaxed after you knew that they were, you know, that they had an elevated alcohol level. So you can't just use that one level to explain everything on that patient. We all have at least secondhand knowledge of some patient who was being observed in the trauma bay, and then after four or five hours, starts waking up. They say, hey, what happened? And the patient replies, Jim Bob shot me. <laughs> and the doc looks at them and is like, I'm sorry, what? I got shot. And they do the CAT scan, and there it is. There's the bullet. It's like, well, huh. I've seen that CAT scan. I've fortunately not had it happen to me. But there can absolutely be multiple things going on with patients. And same with the, 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 the urine. I mean, I mean, I know we like to get a UA, find a few white blood cells and blame our altered... Hey, it's time to get them admitted. They've got a UTI. <laughs> uh, and I'm the first to do that. But I think you just have to be remember of what can happen to you. Once you've explained the problem, the tendency is your brain to relax. And I think just because you've explained it, you need to just have a little bit more vigilance to make sure you're going the extra mile and you consider all the, the wide differential that Or that you think on. that you explained it because diagnostic momentum is what that gets called. Patient gets labeled, it's a lot easier to get them admitted with a label and we tend to turn their brains off. We all know that patients having urine colonized is a very real thing. And so urinary tract infections do not protect against all the other sort of things that are on the differential. 
And I, and I and you know, you, you didn't like how I said that the glucose was the, like the EKG in chest pain patients for the altered patients. If the glucose, maybe the glucose could be more like the aspirin. Maybe the CT scan could be more like the EKG. And maybe the UA could be like the chest x-ray. Is, that, oh, is that okay? Love it. Okay, I had to get there. So to summarize, airway, breathing, circulation. Assess those three basic things on those patients that can't talk to you. Get that IV in. Get the fluid started. Get them on the monitor. Evaluate those vital signs. Give them some oxygen. Check that blood sugar. Do those things. That helps you know where you're going in those first few minutes in the room. After you've done that, broad differential is the biggest thing that we can leave you with today because you don't know what you're going to find, but it may just be there. And, and that's what I would like to, to be our point is that I think there's a tendency when when you see the confused patient or the elderly person who's confused, your 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 own alertness goes down and you get frustrated. But I think what I want to say is be excited. This is this is part where it takes you know a very thoughtful approach, and there could be a lot of pathology here that that is actually very exciting. I mean, it's a chance to use your ultrasound because, like we said, the elderly patient could have hemorrhagic shock or hypovolemia. Look at their IVC. See what their lungs are doing. Look at that heart to see if you can explain it. You know, the CT scan could show a bleed. This patient can end up getting needing neurosurgery. Um, it could be a toxic overdose. This could be a you know this could be your one chance to see a digoxin overdose, and or it can be you know salicylate poisoning, and you could need to give you know um, some bicarb drip. And it's a real good chance to go over a lot of pathology. And I would encourage you to be excited about this and and to remain vigilant that that you're actually going to make a difference in these patients' lives keeping that active mind. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the program. I'm glad we could do this. I hope we can talk again about some more topics going forward. I think we're going to do uh, shortness of breath next time. I think the approach to difficulty breathing is a great kind of bullet point talk um, that will be coming up in a time to be named later. I'm excited. Somehow you're going to tie in stroke with that one too, aren't you? Well, you know me. 